Today's tour is more about the stops than the neighborhood. We're gonna start in Davisville and then we'll explore Mount Pleasant Cemetery a little bit and we'll finish up in Moore Park. I know a cemetery seems like a weird addition to this festive walk theme that's happening in December, but think about it for a minute. It's calm and quiet. There are lots of trees and like gravestones for snow to sit on. It can be nice. And we're going to talk about a lot more than just graves today. I promise. I gotta say, I hope you had an easier time getting here than I did. I came to Mount Pleasant on an early fall day and I was biking and I got lost at least two or three times. Ended up going in literal circles in some of the more uphill parts of town. I've been here before, I just hadn't biked here before. And eventually I ended up going up Mount Pleasant Road, which is a pretty busy street. It's comparable to a highway. I almost got hit by one of those cars and I ended up just walking up the hill with my bike. It's a pretty beautiful road really on both sides. It's densely covered with trees. It's a nice break between downtown Toronto, which is very gray and glass and cement, you know, all of that. After that trek, you can imagine that I was thirsty. So let's meet at Starbucks, not just any Starbucks, but the one at Young and Davisville. Meet you there. Yes, I know I got an iced pumpkin spice latte, classic. Look, I try to keep my inner basic white girl in a cage as much as possible, but sometimes you gotta let her out to have a seasonal drink. It's the only way to keep her in check. You might choose to stand or sit across the street from this busy corner, or you might wanna go in and get yourself a drink too. Either way, try and get a good look at the place. It's not your typical Starbucks building. It kind of stands out from the mix of high-rise buildings and low-rise storefronts in the area. It's made of red brick. It has a triangular-shaped roof covered in black shingles. You can see pictures on the wall through the two windows on the second floor. Kind of looks like a house. <laughs> well, as you might have guessed, it was a house. This was the home of John Davis. He was a British settler and businessman who owned a lot of the land in this part of town. In 1840, he wanted there to be a post office in the area, but apparently the city had nowhere to put it, which I don't fully understand because highly doubt the area was as crowded as it is today and he did own a lot of land, but either way, he offered his house as the location of the post office. I guess if you want a post office badly enough to live in it, then you're worthy of being immortalized because this area was known as Davisville after that. Those pictures on the wall upstairs are old pictures of this location in Davisville. I will post some on Instagram if you're curious. I mentioned he was a businessman. He was actually the area's top employer for a long time. He ran a pottery company using clay from up on Eglinton. They made bowls, bottles, vases, things like that. We're not going to go there today, but east on Merton Street, just past Mount Pleasant Road, there's a playground called Pottery Playground, which is where the factory used to stand. Eventually, Davis passed away, obviously, and his son took over the post office. His house is still around, too. East on Davisville Avenue, you can see it at 309 Davisville. It's a heritage site now. Speaking of east on Davisville, we're going to go east on Davisville. <laughs> 
Before we do, take a peek over your shoulder at the southwest corner of Davisville and Young. That's the TTC headquarters. So many dreams of raising fares have been conceived and achieved there. I'll meet you at 77 Davisville Avenue. Okay, we're standing in front of 77 Davisville. Turn right into the parking lot. I promise you're not trespassing. I guess I can't promise that, but trust me, I did it and I didn't get in trouble. In the little garden island thing in front of the building entrance, it's a little bit closer to, to the street, to Davisville. You should see these bright red sculptures. My first thought when I saw them was that they looked like smoothed over brains on wheels. <laughs> Uh, and when I looked a bit more closely, they looked more like the head of Toad, the Super Mario character, on wheels. I'm not sure what they're supposed to be, but I do know that they were created by a German artist named Karl Lander. He was a popular artist in the 1970s. Anyways, I didn't bring you here just to look at this one statue. If you look behind you, you'll notice that there's a whole statue garden just east of the entranceway. It's kind of tucked away in some places I've read it referred to as like a secret sculpture garden, but it's formally known as the Al Green Sculpture Garden. Al Green was a building developer who was super passionate about art. This lot used to be a city-owned park, but ended up under his ownership and he decided to keep it as a park, but fill it with sculptures. Those red brain toad things were actually commissioned by him for this garden. There used to be works from other well known artists in the 60s and 70s. I say well known, I, I don't know anything about them. If you do, some of their names are Sorel Etrog and Koso Ilul, but I didn't see the statues that I thought would be here, so I wonder if they moved. Mostly what I saw were Al Green's own works. He ended up pursuing art himself after he retired from the development industry. It's now time for the death part of the episode. Listen closely because I have some pretty specific instructions for you to get to Mount Pleasant Cemetery. There's a few options. This is the route I took. The statue garden opens right up into a park that brings you to Balliol Street. I just walked through that park and uh, turned left on Al Green Lane off of Balliol. Al Green, ring a bell. And then I kept walking straight all the way up until I passed Merton Street through what seems like a building's parking lot and eventually you'll find yourself at the pedestrian entrance to the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. You can't miss it. It's It's got like a wrought iron fence with like an arch at the top of it that says Mount Pleasant Cemetery. If you don't feel like going through the park and through Al Green Lane, then you can just go back to Young Street and then turn left on Merton and then turn right on Al Green until you get to that pedestrian entrance. But it's more fun this way, I promise. When you're at that gate I mentioned, we'll start our next stop.
Okay, we're now in Mount Pleasant Cemetery, which is not only a cemetery, but a designated National Historic Site, as well as an Arboretum. Many people treat it like a park. They take walks through here, they run through here. I've seen older women set up camp chairs and chat over coffee here. The cemetery has been around since 1876 and it's massive. It's about 205 acres and over 186,000 people are buried here. And we're gonna talk about all of them, just joking. There are so many incredible people and stories in the cemetery. Canada's first female surgeon is buried here. Her name was Jenny Smiley Robinson. The Métis artist Young Fox, who received the Aboriginal Order of Canada for his work with First Nations youth, is here. So is Robert Sutherland, the first black lawyer in Canada as well as the renowned pianist Glenn Gould. Two Titanic survivors are buried here. Ethel Flora Fortune, she was a first-class passenger and the name suits it. And Arthur Godfrey Poochin, who was also a World War I veteran. I bet he brought up his survival accomplishments a lot at parties. The original drummer of Rush, John Howard Retzi, is also buried here. Today I'm going to focus on a well-known political figure and a couple of true crime stories. In terms of how you're gonna walk through the park, try and stay along the north side of the cemetery. So as soon as you walked through that gate, there's like a full on road that goes through the cemetery. So turn left on that road and just keep walking straight through the cemetery until you eventually will get to a fork in the road and you'll turn left and it'll bring you to like an underpass that'll bring you to the other half of the cemetery that's on the other side of Mount Pleasant Road. I did do a, like a recorded walking path video of this. So if you wanna check out the Instagram, you can see what I mean. Eventually you'll exit Mount Pleasant on the other side of Mount Pleasant Road, and that's where we'll be ending this stop. As long as you find your way there, then we'll be fine. Okay, we're gonna start with Canada's 10th Prime Minister, William Lyon Mackenzie King. Not to be confused with his grandfather, William Lyon Mackenzie, who was also a notable Torontonian that we'll talk about another day. William Lyon Mackenzie is buried at Necropolis, but William Lyon Mackenzie King is buried here in Mount Pleasant. And if you keep your eye on the right side of the road as you're walking, you will see his grave at some point. I could go into Mackenzie King's whole life story, but I'm just gonna stick to some of the notable and weird stuff I found out about him. He was prime minister for almost 22 years, I think the longest serving prime minister to date, and the leader of the Liberal Party. He was in power during the Great Depression, as well as World War II. His government actually introduced unemployment insurance to Canada at the beginning of that war. He was prime minister in 1929, when women were declared persons in Canadian law, after the efforts of the famous five suffragists. Just a side note, I always thought that the famous five fought for women's right to vote and that that's what they accomplished in 1929, but most women got the right to vote in 1918. And while some of the famous five were key figures in that activism, so were Marianne Shad Carey and Louisa Johnson, two black activists. They were a big part of that fight. But what happened in 1929, the right for women to be acknowledged as a person meant that women could be appointed to the Senate of Canada. In that year, that right was granted to most, but not all women in Canada. If you were indigenous or of Asian descent, then you didn't have that right yet. Okay, back to Mackenzie King. One of the main things that struck me about him is that he had an interesting combination of values and interests, and he's actually pretty well known for being a bit of an eccentric prime minister. He believed in the social gospel approach to society, which means using Christian values to quote unquote solve social justice issues. But he was also famously into spiritualism and would often hold seances to communicate with his mother after she passed, as well as his his colleagues that had passed away. He never got married and he was obsessed with his three Irish terriers. He was described as an uncharismatic, uncreative leader, but like I said, he also held the position for a record amount of time. So something I guess was working for the public. 
most of what I said about Mackenzie King so far has been either positive or neutral, but now let's talk some shit. Mackenzie King was a pretty well-known racist. He kept journals for most of his life that included racial slurs, anti-Semitic comments, and his political career oversaw some of the most discriminatory legislation against Asian Canadians, as well as indigenous peoples in Canada. Before his prime minister days, when he was deputy labor minister, Mackenzie King visited Vancouver to evaluate the damage done to Asian-owned businesses after the 1907 anti-Asian riots. The riots were led by white Canadians who were angry at the volume of immigrants coming from from China, Japan, and India to find work. The riots targeted the parts of Vancouver where members of these community, particularly Japanese Canadians, owned a number of small businesses. Mackenzie King did offer them reparations for the damages, but apparently he also found that there was a significant number of opium dens run by the Asian community, and he had been doing some work at the time looking into drug use. It was becoming a very, like, popular thing in the political space at the time. And within Western Canada, Asian immigrants were often painted as these like immoral addicts. And when white women or bohemians, as I saw them called in some places, started frequenting the dens, it apparently got Mackenzie King's attention. On one side of the coin, people say that he realized the problem was growing in Canada beyond this small group of people. On the other hand, people were saying he was disturbed that white women were potentially having their morals corrupted by the Asian community. Either way, King ended up passing Canada's first prohibition law, the Opium Act, after making these discoveries. July 1st, 1923 was the first time Canadians widely celebrated Confederation Day, the day that Canada became a country. This celebration in 1923 was called Dominion Day and was known as that for a long time and eventually became known as Canada Day. But to the Chinese Canadian community, it was known as Humiliation Day for many years because this was the day that Mackenzie King's government passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. According to the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21, only four classes of Chinese immigrants would be allowed in Canada, diplomats and government representatives, children born in Canada who had left for educational or other purposes, merchants as defined by the Minister of Immigration and Colonization, and students while attending university or college. Vessels transporting Chinese immigrants were only authorized to carry one Chinese immigrant for every 250 tons of the ship's total weight. Chinese individuals already in Canada were required to register and carry photo identification as evidence of their compliance with the regulations of the act. Even Canadian-born and naturalized Chinese immigrants were made to register register. Less than 50 Chinese immigrants were accepted into Canada during that time, a time that spanned about 24 years. Prior to this, Canada had enforced a head tax on Chinese immigrants, which wasn't enough to prevent them from coming because there was a lot of work opportunity here that was needed at the time. But throughout the years of this head tax not having the results that the government was looking for, they decided to take more drastic measures in the 20s, bringing forth this Exclusion Act. It wasn't until the Second World War when many Asian Canadians enrolled in the army and served in the war that the war veterans and people associated with the war started receiving more rights and public opinion turned more in their favor. The same can be said for a lot of racialized groups in Canada during that time, including Indigenous peoples. So that's what I wanted to share about Mackenzie King. I'm oversimplifying all of this, and I honestly really wanted to go into so much more detail, but we don't have time for that today. If you're interested in the history of Asian immigration in Canada and the politics of opium and drugs in Canada, slash the, the Commonwealth, because the Commonwealth is a big part of the story, I highly recommend you listen to the Secret Life of Chinatown episode of the Secret Life of Canada podcast, as well as the Smell of the Poppy episode of the On Drugs podcast.
I'm going to tell you a true crime story now. Honestly, part of me feels a little weird talking about true crime. It's sad, it can be really disturbing, but humans, myself included, just have this morbid curiosity in us, I guess. There's enough murder podcasts and like Kichi or Kishi, I don't even know how you pronounce that word, but you know what I mean. T-shirts and mugs and things to prove it. At least this podcast is only sometimes murdery. <laughs> I do want to share a content warning before I get started on this story. It's about two and a half minutes long and the victim is a child. So if you want to skip ahead for that amount of time, two and a half minutes, I'll give you a couple of seconds to do that. For the rest of you, I will see you in five or so seconds. This is the story of Allison Parrott, who is buried in the cemetery. Allison was an 11-year-old girl who got some attention in the city for being a track star. Her picture was even in the Toronto Star. In July 1986, Allison was home alone and she answered a phone call. The man on the other line said he was a photographer and that he wanted to meet her at the University of Toronto's Varsity Stadium to take pictures of her and her teammates. Allison called her mom at work asking if she could go. They agreed that she could take a certain route and that she'd be home by 2.30 that afternoon. When she didn't come home, Home. Her parents started asking around the neighborhood and eventually called the police. Subway riders had told the police that they had seen her alone on the route that she had discussed with her mom, but they didn't find too much else right away. Over the next few days, hundreds of people joined a search party looking for her, and she was found two days after she went missing by two boys walking in Kings Mill Park. This part's a little tough to hear. When they had found her, she had been bound, raped, and strangled. There was a $50,000 reward for information on the murderer. The police interviewed thousands and thousands of people and it took them 10 years, but eventually they arrested Francis Carl Roy, a man who used the same training facility as Allison's track club, which is probably, you know, where he first caught sight of her. Roy had a previous criminal record, including possession of stolen property, petty theft, fraud, assault, breaking and entering, and rape. He had previously received an 11-year sentence for raping two teenage girls, but he was let out on parole after two and a half years, and it was during his time on parole that he murdered Allison. The police found that he had been tracking her for days, calling all the parrots in the city until he found the right house. A few days before the murder, Allison's babysitter picked up the phone, which is how he realized he finally had found the right number. His DNA was on Allison's body, so they knew they had a pretty prime suspect. In 1999, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for 25 years. This was a rough story. The reason I wanted to share it is because I learned that the year after Allison's death, her mom, who worked at an ad agency, spearheaded a campaign geared towards educating kids about how to avoid unsafe situations with strangers. If you grew up in Canada in the 90s, you've definitely heard of it. It featured these fashionably dressed bunnies who gave kids tips on how to be careful when interacting with strangers, and it was called Stay Alert, Stay Safe. If you skip the true crime, welcome back. I'm going to finish the cemetery walk with a story that kind of made me laugh about a woman called Holy Ann, who is of course buried in the cemetery. Anne Preston was born in Ireland in 1810. When she was a teenager, she became a housekeeper for a strict Methodist family in Ireland. They eventually wanted to move to Canada, and even though her parents wanted her to stay in Ireland, she went with the family and lived with them in Thornhill, Ontario. I mentioned the family was a strict Methodist family, so working for them led her to becoming devoutly religious. She became known for calling on 
God for every little thing she was doing around the house, like asking, Father, where did I put the laundry? And Father, what should I make for dinner? In church, she stood out by yelling hallelujah and praise the Lord throughout the service. She started being mocked by the neighborhood children and they called her Holy Anne and the name actually stuck after that. Even though it started as a joke, she shortly after apparently was able to perform miracles. For example, one day the well was dry and after she prayed all day and night for it to fill, she was able to get two buckets of water out from it and word kind of spread and she became a bit of a regional celebrity. People would come to her to be healed and for her to pray for them. When she passed away, the mayor of Toronto at the time participated in her funeral and he was quoted as saying, This week I had two honors. I met with the president of the USA and I participated in the funeral of Anne Preston. I regard the latter as the greater honor. We're just about done our time in the cemetery. Hopefully you didn't get lost. Or if you did, I maybe you had a good time. Once you find yourself out of the cemetery on Mount Pleasant Road, we're going to walk south on Mount Pleasant until you get to St. Clair. On the corner of St. Clair and Mount Pleasant Road, there's a little parquet with a couple of statues in it called the Loring Wild Parquet. It doesn't look like much, but the story behind the two women it's named after is a pretty interesting one. Florence Weil and Frances Loring were sculptors who met in Chicago around 1905 while they were studying neoclassical sculpting techniques. Weil was 24 and Loring was 18 at the time, and they were honestly pretty inseparable for the rest of their lives after that. In 1913, they both moved to Toronto, where their careers really started taking off. Military-inspired art was all the rage, apparently, and both women got a lot of work in that space. In the 40s, they collaborated on a huge Art Deco-style monument that featured a lion and the profiles of King George and Queen Elizabeth. It was placed at the Toronto entrance to the Queen Elizabeth Way Highway, the QEW. When I say Queen Elizabeth, by the way, I mean the Queen Mother, not Queen Elizabeth II. She was known as Queen Elizabeth before Queen Elizabeth II became Queen. Loring also did a sculpture of Sir Robert Borden that stands on Parliament Hill, which I'm sure was a huge deal at the time. Loring and Wilde were known in the art community as the girls, and apparently they threw the best parties. The repurposed church that they shared as a live workspace became a cultural hub for artists in the city. Even the group of seven hung out there sometimes. I read that their signature drink was scotch mixed with fresh snow. <laughs> I guess like snow cones, but just like pure booze, <laughs> no juice. Like I said, Loring and Wilde lived and worked together for most of their lives. They apparently shared a bedroom and they died one month apart. In this park, you'll see a bust of each of them sculpted by the other. It has been speculated by many that they were lesbians. Despite there being rumors that Weil was in love with a married man back in Chicago and that Loring had flings with various men, who knows, maybe they were bi or pan or poly, or maybe those men were just beards or like straight up lies. Regardless, they clearly paved their own way and spent their lives in a way that worked for them. And I thought that was pretty cool. All right, we're gonna head over to our last stop. Walk south on Mount Pleasant until you get to Inglewood Drive and then turn left. I'll see you there.
If you've lived in Toronto during the holiday season for the past few years, you might have heard of Kringlewood. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, let me explain. Since 2013 or so, the residents of Inglewood Drive, part of Toronto's affluent Moore Park neighborhood, have been erecting these giant, we're talking like 14-foot inflatable Santas, <laughs> you know, Santa, also known as Kris Kringle, on each of their lawns. This year, there are apparently at least 60 Santas lining the road. I went back to check out Kringlewood in early December, and though it was midday on a Sunday and there was no snow, there were still a decent amount of people who had come out to admire the army of Santas. It's hard not to laugh at all these Santas towering over you as you walk down the street, but what I didn't expect was the sound. <laughs> Listen to this. Hear that low buzzing sound? I thought there was like distant construction work happening, but that's the air pump like working overtime to keep Santa on his feet in front of one of the houses. And I'm not even confident that that sound is just one of the Santas. It might just be like a chorus of air pumps since there's literally a Santa in front of every house on this street. It's not a completely arbitrary initiative, apparently. The organizers do run a food drive every year. And this year I saw one of the houses with a box outside saying that they were matching food item donations with monetary donations. But I've also heard rumors that this was started by someone high up at Canadian Tire back in the day. Apparently the Santas cost about $250 at, at Canadian Tire, so who's to say? That concludes today's festive walk. I will leave you here on Santa Claus Lane. Until next time. Walking in Place is written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley McDonough. Thank you, Lucas Benoit, for the theme music and Yasmin Najib for the beautiful artwork.